where we left off the last time we were here together. Chapter 15. We'll begin reading this morning from verse 29. And just to to recap what we've been doing over the past few weeks, we've been looking at the various opinions that have been developing among the people with regard to who it is that Jesus is. Who it is that Jesus is. That made a lot of sense. Who is Jesus? Well, the Pharisees and scribes had their opinion. They thought he was a rebel, an imposter. They did not want anything to do with Jesus, and they sought every way that they could come up with to convince the people that he is not who he is saying he is. They hated him. They wanted him out, literally. They wanted to take him out. In that confrontation that was in chapter 15 with the scribes and the Pharisees, they thought they had some way of convincing the people that Jesus was indeed an imposter by accusing his disciples of not following the traditions of the rabbis. Well, the traditions of the rabbis were not in line with the word of God. And Jesus pointed that out to them. The Holy Bible, the Word of God, the Old Testament Scriptures that they all were familiar with did not speak of the same things that they were trying to accuse Jesus and His disciples of doing. In fact, Jesus pointed that out to them in a very, very remarkable way, as always He does, by pointing out to them that they were actually putting their traditions above the very Word of God, and that was something that Jesus was not willing to accept. Neither should we be willing. Because it's not good that any tradition should circumvent the Word of God, should supersede or take the place of the Word of God. No tradition should ever, ever contradict the Word of God. If it is doing so, then it is not something that we should be following after. Now, that does not mean that all traditions are bad. Some traditions are indeed good. And we should continue to do those things that are good and in agreement with the Word of God, but certainly not if they are in disagreement with the Word of God. And that's what Jesus had been telling those disciples and also the Pharisees and scribes who were there present when He said, Why do you also transgress the command of God because of your tradition? Called them hypocrites. They honored God with their lips but their heart is far from him. That's the accusation that Jesus made of the scribes and Pharisees, quoting from Isaiah 29, and it is rightly so that that would be applied to them. And then in chapter 15 later, we read about the fact that Jesus went up into the region of Tyre and Sidon, outside of the nation of Israel, in Gentile territory, and it was there that he met with a woman who was a Canaanite, Matthew tells us, a Syrophoenician woman by heritage. But she knew something about Jesus. She knew Him to be the God of Israel. She knew something of Jesus when she said, You are the Son of God. Amazing for a Gentile to admit that very fact. As her conversation finally ended with Jesus She got what she had been after, calling him Lord and Son of David. 
Jesus condescended to give her that which she was seeking, the healing of her daughter. And Jesus commented after that conversation with her that she was a woman of great faith. Only one other place in the book of Matthews is it referred to as one who has great faith, and that was with regard to a Gentile back in Matthew chapter 8. Even though Jesus was sent to just the lost sheep of Israel, he ministered to the Gentiles. So unlike the Pharisees and the scribes, this woman at least had an idea of who Jesus was. Though it may not have been complete knowledge that led to salvation, she was very much aware of the fact that this man was more than just a man. Even his own disciples were just now at this point beginning to realize this. After all, it was just a few verses prior to that encounter that we saw Jesus ministering to a multitude by feeding 5,000 men plus women and children with just two little fish and five loaves of bread. Amazing miracle that had taken place. Not only that, but after having collected 12 baskets full, they got into the boat and headed back to the other side of the Sea of Galilee without Jesus in the boat with them. And in the midst of that sea, a storm hit on that boat that was fierce and causing them all to be very, very fearful of their lives. And they struggled in the midst of that storm all night long. And then Jesus comes and walks on the water. Next to the boat, they thought they saw a ghost. They saw Jesus. And when he spoke to them from that walking on the water, Peter says, Lord, if it's you, bid me to come out onto the water also. And he did. He said, come on. And so Peter got out of the boat and began to walk on the water. You know the story. It's so familiar. He began to sink when he took his eyes off of Jesus. And the next thing you know, he cries out, Jesus, save me. And Jesus grabbed him by the hand and they both got into the boat. And Matthew tells us immediately they were at the seashore on the other side. They saw miracle after miracle after miracle after miracle. And now they begin to realize, wow. This guy is more than just a man. But they hadn't yet come to the right conclusion about who it is that Jesus is. They were still uncertain about certain things. They were expecting, for instance, that Jesus would become the king and that he would take them to Jerusalem and he would proclaim himself to be their king and sit upon the throne of David and get rid of the Roman conquerors from the land. They were looking for a Messiah who would deliver them from oppression. They were not looking for the Messiah who was coming for a completely different purpose than this. So in our study this morning, we're going to begin to see some insight that they are given with regard to the purpose that Jesus had in coming at that particular hour. But again, he had said, I have come only for the lost sheep of Israel. If they had received him, he would have been glad to become their king. But he knew that they would not receive him. It wasn't just the Gentiles that needed to receive him. It wasn't just the Pharisees and the scribes. It was all people. But primarily, the leaders of the Jews needed to be convinced. But they would not. 
As we read into the remaining part of chapter 15 and into chapter 16 today, we'll be seeing a little bit more indication about why Jesus has come and what the world is going to do in reacting to his presence there with them on the earth. So verse 29 of chapter 15 continues. Now Jesus departed from there. Now this is on the western shore of the Sea of Galilee. And he's heading back over to the eastern shore now with his disciples. It says Jesus departed from there and skirted the Sea of Galilee and went up on the mountain and sat down there. Now they walked all the way around the northern shore and ended up again in the northeast corner of the Sea of Galilee, where the 5,000 had been fed. But this time he heads a little bit further down toward the eastern side, not the north, but the eastern side of the sea, where the cities of the Decapolis are. Now the Decapolis is a Greek word for ten cities. And they were Gentile communities on that eastern shore, primarily inhabited by Gentiles, with some Jews in their territory as well. You may remember in our previous studies that Jesus had been there before and he healed the demon-possessed man who was living in caves and a thousand or actually two thousand pigs were entered into by that demon when Jesus cast that demon or those demons out of that man and those pigs were cast into the water and died and that demoniac had been completely delivered and he had wanted to go with Jesus when Jesus left from there to go back to Galilee, or to uh, rather his home base in Capernaum. But Jesus told him, no, you stay here and you tell all your friends about what the Lord has done for you. Well, the reason I bring that part of the story up is because that guy must have done a really, really good job because now Jesus is back in that territory and this story that unfolds for us in this latter part of chapter 15 talks about the results perhaps most likely, of what that man was capable of doing by staying there and telling others what Jesus had done for him. And Matthew doesn't tell us that, but it is implied that in the way that these things unfold before us here. Jesus is in that territory. He sits down, and then a great multitude, it tells us in verse 30, came to him, having with them the lame, blind, mute, maimed, and many others, and they laid them down at Jesus' feet, and he healed them. Now, again, it's Gentile territory. We're not told by Matthew if it is Gentiles being ministered to or Jews being ministered to here. Most scholars believe it to be just Gentiles. There are some who believe it to be a mixed combination of Gentiles and Jews. And we're not really told. It can only be speculated upon by what the Word of God tells us with regard to this encounter. But he healed them all. My understanding of what is being done is based on what little we do know from the Scriptures. And so I submit to you that this is only opinion. I believe it was a mixed multitude even though Jews do not typically hang around Gentiles, every one of them wanted to see Jesus. So it looks as though, if that is correct, that the Jews especially would have laid down their differences so that they could be near Jesus and hear what he has to say and to be healed by him. Again, they intentionally brought the sick, all of them, 
came with the lame, the blind, the mute, the maimed, and many others. Listen to the category of things that he has done to this multitude. And then take a look at the size of the multitude. Verse 31, So the multitude marveled when they saw the mute speaking, the maimed made whole, the lame walking, and the blind seeing, and they glorified the God of Israel. Matthew is telling us this group glorified the God of Israel. Now Mark tells us actually where that happened. Mark tells us, because he's writing to Romans, Jesus went to the Decapolis. Matthew doesn't mention that. Matthew's a Jew writing to Jews, and it's likely that Matthew wouldn't want to identify the ministry of Jesus to the Gentiles in such a way as identifying where he went and to whom he ministered. However, the clue is given here that they glorified the God of Israel. It's the first place that that phrase is used in Matthew's Gospel, and it seems to be implying that it's Gentiles who are glorifying the God of Israel. He would have chosen a different phrase if it had been Jews, I believe. Primarily, he would have said, their God. But it's not their God, it's the God of Israel. So I think that perhaps it's good to conclude, because of the region, because of the likelihood from what we read in Matthew and in Mark that this was primarily Gentiles that were being ministered to. The woman in the northwest corner heading up into Tyre and Sidon, she was definitely a Gentile. Now he's again ministering to at least some Gentiles, if not exclusively Gentiles. But that's wonderful because even though Jesus had said, I've come to the lost sheep of Israel, he's ministering now to Gentile populations. Why? Because Israel is rejecting him. He's moving in that direction. And by the way, this is now less than a year before his crucifixion. He's preparing to die on the cross for all humanity. So Jesus is now making way. There will only be one other occasion where we read in Matthew's Gospel that he enters back into the territory of the Jews exclusively. He will go back to a place called Magdala, which is in the southwestern corner of the sea. And in some of the translations, actually, that word Magdala is not the same. It is Magadha, which is an unknown name. So most translators say, well, that must be Magdala. But some also think that it was perhaps on the western, eastern shore. But we're not con- completely Uh, aware of where that location was. We'll get to that in a moment. But here he is feeding these multitudes of people, primarily Gentiles. They're worshiping the God of Israel. They're seeing the hand of God, Jesus, healing all of them who were brought. What a remarkable thing. But that's not all he does. In verse 32 it says, Now Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion on the multitude because they have now continued with me three days and have nothing more to eat. And I do not want to send them away hungry lest they faint on the way. And then his disciples said to him, Where could we get enough bread in the wilderness to feed such a great multitude? Don't you remember? Why don't you recall that just a short while ago we fed 5,000 with just five loaves of bread and two fish. Now we've got fewer people and you're wondering how we're going to feed such a multitude. What's wrong with these disciples? There are a couple of possibilities. 
Either they were very, very sick. Perhaps they had Alzheimer's. They couldn't remember. Or they deliberately didn't think that Jesus would be doing such a miracle with Gentiles as he had done with Jews prior to this occasion. This is a different occasion than the feeding of 5,000. But I submit to you that it's very likely that they were looking around and seeing all these Gentiles. They didn't think that Jesus would be ministering to the Gentiles because he had said, I'm only sent to the lost sheep of Israel. So how could they ever possibly have assumed that he would feed Gentile people? They didn't know the love of God. They didn't know the power of God. They didn't know the compassion of Jesus. But whether they were Gentiles or Jews, he had compassion on them. And so he asked the same question of them that he had done previously to this occasion. How many loaves do you have, Jesus said, verse 34. And they said, seven and a few little fish. So it's not the same as the feeding of 5,000. They've actually got more for less people. That ought to make it easier for Jesus. So he commanded them, the multitude, to sit down on the ground. And he took the seven loaves and the fish and gave thanks. Sound familiar? That's what he did with the feeding of the 5,000. He took the bread and the fish and he guessed that it would be right for God to bless it. (laughs) He gave thanks to his father for the provision. He blessed it. He broke the bread and gave it to his disciples. And the disciples gave to the multitude just like it did before. It became all that was needed. More than all that was needed. It tells us in verse 37, so that they ate and were filled. Again, that word filled is satiated, filled, full to the full. I enjoyed a great meal yesterday afternoon, and I was stuffed when I finished that meal. It was wonderful. But Jesus fed this multitude, and I wonder if they felt even better about that meal than I felt yesterday. And that's quite amazing if that were the case. They were all filled and they took up seven large baskets. Not twelve small baskets, but seven large baskets. This would be the same basket that Paul was let down, or the same type of basket that Paul was let down from the wall at Damascus when he had first become a believer and started teaching the Word of God, having been converted on the road to Damascus. The Jews wanted to kill him. They couldn't find him. He was let down in that large basket from the wall. That's the size of the basket that we're talking about here. It was a Roman basket, kind of like a a hamper today. Large baskets full of the fragments were left, seven of those. And it tells us again in verse 38, those who were eating were 4,000 men besides women and children. We don't know how many women and children were there. Again, it would be speculation. don't need to worry about how many there were. This means that there were more than 4,000 people in all who were fed. Amazing miracle, again, that Jesus does before his disciples. And then in verse 39, it says, And when he sent the multitude away, he got into the boat and came to the region of Magdala. And that's where some of your translations say Magdala. 
Magadha instead of Magdala. We don't know where that was, but he went there, and it is there that Jesus has another encounter. encounter. Now, he had seen the scribes and the Pharisees. He had been with the disciples. He had been with the woman from Tyre. Now he's been with a multitude of Gentiles, mostly on the eastern shore, and now he's going to have another account, encounter with another group of individuals that are not convinced that Jesus is who he says he is. Verse 1 of chapter 16 says, Then the Pharisees and Sadducees came and tested him and asked that he would show them a sign from heaven. Now remember in chapter 12, we had already seen Pharisees and what? Pharisees and scribes. Now he has Pharisees and Sadducees coming before him. Scribes were not the same as Sadducees. They were different groups. Scribes were writers of the law. They associated with the Pharisees because they agreed with the Pharisees on all of their doctrinal positions. Sadducees, on the other hand, were completely different than the Pharisees. The Pharisees would be what you would call the legalists of that day. The letter of the law was most important to them. The Sadducees, on the other hand, were the liberals of that day. They only believed in the first five books of the Bible. They didn't believe in the resurrection. They didn't believe in angels, although angels are mentioned in the first five books of the Bible. They didn't accept anything to do with the miraculous, and they're not going to be on Jesus' side with regard to this issue. Who is Jesus? They hated him as much as the Pharisees did. And you all know that if you are a group that associates with another group, you're friends with that group. The Pharisees and the Sadducees were not friendly toward one another. They were enemies. But they were coming together this time because they had a common enemy, Jesus. It's amazing that two enemy groups can get together and form an alliance because they both hate another group. Think about that when you think about what's going on in the world around us today. And you'll see that that is exactly what's taking place in the Middle East. Russia and Iran are not friends. Russia and Turkey have not been friends. But they're coming together, uniting as a one single force against who? The nation of Israel. Why? Because the nation of Israel is their common enemy. Just like it was with the Pharisees and the Sadducees in Jesus' day, they were enemies with one another, but they had another common enemy that they both wanted to be rid of. So now the Pharisees and the Sadducees have come together and they begin to ask Jesus the same thing that the Pharisees and the scribes had asked earlier on in chapter 12. Show us a sign and we'll believe you. Ha! They wouldn't have believed anything that Jesus did. Take note of the response of Jesus this time, as opposed to what his response was in chapter 12, verses 38 through 40. You'll see there that Jesus talked about the fact that no sign will be given. That's what he's going to say here. But he tells them that no sign will be given except for the sign of Jonah. For as it was with Jonah, three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so shall it be with the Son of Man, three days and three nights in the belly of the earth. That's what he said in chapter 12 with regard to the discussion he had with the Pharisees and the scribes. Here in this portion of Scripture, it's a slightly different group of individuals and a different answer. In verse 2 he says, He answered and said to them, When it is evening... You say it will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning it will be foul weather, for the sky is red and threatening. 
Hypocrites. Pharisees knew that word well. This is the first time that he's used that word against the Sadducees. A lot of people say, well, they're named Sadducees because they were sad, you see. That's a good way to remember that, but I'm not really sure that that's actually the truth. They were happy to be Sadducees. They thought they had it right. So did the Pharisees. Neither one of them had it right. And he calls them hypocrites because of that. Hypocrites, you know how to discern the face of the sky, but you cannot discern the signs of the times. Red sky in the morning, sailor take warning. Red sky at night, sailor's delight. You all are familiar with that cute little verse? Well, it comes from Jesus, although he didn't say it quite that way. But he gives the same implication of the condition of the sky that we are able to see and read that sky with regard to what's going to happen. When you see the sky turning red at night, you know that it's going to be a pretty decent day tomorrow. But if you see a red sky in the morning, don't go out in the deep sea because it's going to be a tough time if you do. Same thing applies today. It always has been. Everyone who has ever lived that knows anything about the conditions of the sky with regard to the sea knows these things to be so. Jesus is saying, this is something that you all are aware of. You can see the signs of the sky and you know what it means. Why can't you see what's going on around you? Why can't you read the signs of the times in the same way? Now that is a good question for anybody today. There are signs of the times that are now present among us. What are we doing about it? Do we see the things that are going on in the Middle East? Do we see what's going on in Ukraine? Do we see what's going on in China and Taiwan? Do you see what's going on in North Korea? Do you see what's going on in Iraq and Syria? Do you see what's going on in South America? Do you see what's going on in Africa? Are you looking at the news and wondering, what is this all about? Or are you saying... God is on the move. I hope you're saying that, because that is the truth. There are signs of the times. Jesus had talked about those things. And it should be no surprise to any of us, because of what we do see that's going on in the world around us, that there is trouble ahead. But it is trouble ahead for only those who do not believe. Oh, that's good news coming for those who do. And that's what we need to convey to all those who around us that there is little time left, precious little time left. And we are, while there's still day, wanting to share the truth with those who would be willing to hear. Because the time is near for the coming of the Lord. And that coming of the Lord is going to be a very, very difficult thing for people to endure if they do not know the Christ if they do not understand who He is and what He has done, they will be overwhelmed by the things that are coming upon this earth. And these signs that are appearing are a prelude to what is yet to come. None of us will be surprised if we know the Word of God. I hope that that is the case for all of us here. That you know God's Word well enough to know that these are signs that are a preceding set of events that must take place before the coming of the Lord. And among those signs is earthquakes, pestilences, famine, wars and rumors of wars, 
You take a look around, you see all of those things on the increase, increase and with greater frequency and intensity as Jesus had said. But he had said in Matthew chapter 24 that they'll come upon the earth as birth pangs. And ladies, you know what that means. Birth pangs, they come, they get more and more frequent, more and more intense. That's the implication that Jesus gave with regard to those things that are happening in the world. We see signs. The world does not see that. They know the signs of the sky. They can read the sky and know what's going to happen tomorrow from basically because of what is happening in the sky, but they don't see what's happening in the world as being of any significance to what the Word of God declares. That's why we need to convey these truths to all who will believe eventually in Him. There's still some who will come. I know that that is the case. The fullness of Gentiles has not yet come in. Are we to be used by the Lord? I hope that that is the case. I'm praying for a revival in the church and a renewal in the land. I'm praying for a great move of God's Holy Spirit all over this nation. We need that. But if God chooses to condemn this nation, if He refuses to allow His mercy to continue as He has up to this point, then are you going to be scared or are you going to be prepared? The choice that we have is so clear in the Word of God. Keep looking up. Your redemption draws near. God has said, I will not allow the wrath that is to come, to come upon those who believe. Paul emphasizes that over and over again in First and Second Thessalonians. The wrath of God is going to come upon the face of the earth, but we will not suffer that wrath because we are His. We will be saved from it. How? By rapture. Oh, there's no such word in the Bible. Well, I wish to take exception with that statement. Because although the word rapture, which is a transliteration of the Latin word, lapteros, the word that is used in the Greek language, which was in the Word of God originally, was hadzar, hamar, yeah, harmadzo. And that means snatched away, taken up. That's why we say rapture. The Word of God tells us that the church will be harpadzoed, taken up. Suddenly, snatched away. Read First Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 through 18. Read First Corinthians chapter 15. They tell about the resurrection of the body of Christ. And that's our destiny. And because we believe in Jesus Christ, we will not suffer the wrath of God. But it's coming. Signs of the time are everywhere. We know that it to be so because He has said it. But the Pharisees and the Sadducees would not accept what Jesus had been saying. In verse 4 he says, A wicked and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and no sign shall be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. But he ends there. And he then, now after having said that, he left them and departed. He was angry. Righteous indignation forced him to turn away from them with no further opportunity for them to discuss this issue with him. He leaves them. They had chosen what they believed. As the Pharisees and scribes had done earlier, they had chosen what they believed. As a woman in Tyre 
had chosen what she believes. As a people in the Decapolis who experienced all those miracles had chosen what to believe. These Pharisees and Sadducees have chosen now what to believe. And Jesus walks away from them. No further opportunity given. That's a scary thought. No further opportunity given. When darkness falls upon the earth, there will be no opportunity given for them to be saved. After Jesus had that encounter with the Sadducees and the scribes, or rather Pharisees, it tells us in verse 5, Now when his disciples had come on the other side, they had forgotten to take bread. They left all the seven baskets back in the Decapolis, apparently. And then Jesus said to them, Take heed and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Oh, okay. Uh, Thanks, Lord. Well, I'll remember that. What did he mean by that? Well, they certainly didn't understand it. He tells us in verse 7, And they reasoned among themselves, saying, It's because we have forgotten to take bread. But Jesus, being aware of it, said to them, Oh, you of little faith, not great faith, Oh, you of little faith. It's a rebuke. Oh, you of little faith, why do you reason among yourself because you have brought no bread? Don't you yet understand or remember the five loaves of the 5,000 and how many baskets were brought up? Nor the seven loaves of the 4,000 and how many large baskets you took up? Notice that there is a difference in the word baskets. One refers to a small basket, the other refers to a large basket. It's translated well in this translation. Then in verse 11 it says, How is it you do not understand that I did not speak to you concerning bread, but to beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees? Beware of the teachings, the doctrines of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Beware of the leaven. Remember, leaven, according to Jesus, in the parables that he had given earlier, leaven is a type of or a way of describing something else, the effect of sin. Leaven leavens the whole lump, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 6. We just read chapter 5, verse 6 in our study on Thursday nights. We're in the book of 1 Corinthians. It's a great book to be studying. I hope that more of you can join us to become a part of that which we are learning there. But in that wonderful gospel, book of 1 Corinthians, Paul elaborates on the fact that leaven is not a good thing. There's no such thing in the Word of God where it says leaven of the church. That would be a, an oxymoron. Leaven of the Pharisees, leaven of the Sadducees, That's evil. That's causing problems. That is disgusting to God. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. That's never a good thing. You've got to take the leaven out of the lump so that you can be purified, so that you can be unleavened, so that you can be without blemish, without spot, standing before the Lord in holiness and righteousness and in truth. Verse 12 says, Then they understood that he did not tell them beware of the leaven of bread, but of the doctrine of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. The doctrine of the legalists is false doctrine. The doctrine of the liberals is false doctrine. The doctrine of the Word of God is good doctrine. Stick with what God's Word says. 
literal understanding of God's Word is always best. Oh, there are places where you have to spiritualize some things, and you'll find that in certain prophetic words like in Revelation. Some of what John says is indeed to be spiritualized, but not all, certainly. When John in the book of Revelation says, I saw that which was like, then you can know that that is a description of something he didn't understand. But when he tells you, I saw, and then specifically tells you what he saw, that's what he saw. There's no way to take what he saw and turn it into something spiritual just to make sure that your doctrine fits what you believe. The problem with people who have doctrines that are against what the Word of God says is that they have to take all of the Scriptures and try to make it fit their doctrine instead of making your doctrine fit what the Word of God says. That's what we want to do. We want to take whatever the Word of God says and apply that as doctrinal. Paul tells us that it is good to have sound doctrine. And we do need to have sound doctrine. That's why he told Timothy, study to show yourself approved unto God, rightly dividing the word of truth. That's still absolutely essential today for all of us, not just for the leaders of the church, not just for the preachers or the teachers of the word, but for every believer. Rightly divide the word of truth. Don't allow yourself to fall into the trap of believing what somebody says. If it doesn't align with God's word, then walk away from that. Peter, Paul, John, they all said the same thing. Paul's statement is, if anyone, whether it's an angel or anyone else, comes and teaches you any other doctrine, let him be anathema, cursed. John tells us in the book of Revelation, if anyone adds to or detracts from this word of God, let his name be stricken from the word of God, from the, the, the book, rather, of the Bible, of the book of the Lamb of God. Let his name be stricken from the book. That's severe. Just by teaching false doctrine. Yes. That's how serious God is about his word. That's why he gave us his word, so we can depend on it, not on what people say. If I'm here telling you anything that doesn't line up with the word of God, please don't let it continue. Do something about it. Come to me and tell me what you said. I disagree with. I'm okay with that. Let's talk about it. Let's find out from the Word of God why you disagree with what I said or why I shouldn't have said what I did say. And sometimes that's going to happen. Any public speaker is going to make mistakes. I do frequently. But I don't want to make a mistake with regard to the presentation of the Word of God. Bebereans. Look into what the Word of God says. And if you find a conflict in what I have spoken, we need to discuss it. Perhaps I can change my mind. Or perhaps, well, maybe it was you. But we need to find that out, don't we? Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. There are plenty of legalistic churches around. There are plenty of liberal churches around. If they don't teach what the Word of God teaches, let them be accursed. Simple enough. Jesus talked through John to seven churches of Asia, written for our benefit in the book of Revelation. Every one of those churches, except for one, had some good things that were said about them. 
But they all had something that needed to be fixed. Read those letters that Jesus writes to those seven churches in Asia and see if perhaps you might fit into any one of those various places that are opened up for us to see Jesus' opinion. Because His opinion is the only opinion that really matters. My opinion really doesn't. But I want to be accurate. I want to be true to God's Word. I don't want to be like the Pharisees or the Sadducees. I don't want to be lukewarm. I want to be hot. I don't want to be cold. I want to be hot with regard to the Word of God. Finally, verse 12 says, Then they understood that he did not tell them to beware the leaven of bread, but of the doctrines of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Then when Jesus came into the region of Caesarea Philippi, now he's going back up into the northeastern corner of the Sea of Galilee region. Caesarea Philippi is no longer in Herod's jurisdiction. Herod Antipas had rule over much of that territory on the western and southern sides of the Sea of Galilee, but on the northern and eastern sides, it was his half-brother Philip who had power over that region. It was probably safer for him to minister to his disciples after having confronted the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes and all of the others who were against him, and even Herod wanted him killed. That would be a better place for him to end his ministry, and that's exactly where he is going. He's going to spend most of his time from this point on teaching his disciples. And in this particular last portion that we're going to look at this morning, one of the most important teachings that really, really wraps up together what we've been talking about here this morning, who do you say Jesus is? He tells his disciples in verse 13, When Jesus came into the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asks his disciples, saying, Who do you men say that I, the Son of Man, am? Now, he's making no other claim than one. He is the Son of Man. He's identified himself as the Son of Man over and over again up to this point. And I'm not sure that they understood what he meant by that. We can look back and we can see precisely what Jesus is talking about. We can read Daniel chapter 7 and realize that he's talking about that one who Daniel describes in that wonderful passage where the ancient of days, God, was seated on his throne and one like the Son of Man came before him and he was sent by God to go to those who were upon the face of the earth and there was going to be a ministry to those who were upon the earth when he arrives. That is Jesus. He identified himself as the Son of Man. They'll ultimately get that. They'll ultimately understand that. But right now they do not. So he asked them this question, Who do men say that I am? You've been around. He had sent the twelve in particular to the various villages on the east, western side of the shore. And to many of those villages, they went and did many miracles in Jesus' name. They came back and had reported to him all the things that they had done because he had given them the power to do so. Now he's saying, what do those people that you visited with all those times that you were away, what do they say about who I am? Again, Jesus affirms 
This is who I am, the Son of Man. What did they say? So verse 14 says, So they said, Some say John the Baptist. Well, that's what Herod was saying. Some say Elijah. Because of the power of doing all the miracles that he had done, Elijah was one of the greatest miracle workers in the Old Testament. So some were thinking, because he's doing all these miracles, perhaps he must be Elijah, come back to life. In fact, if you read the Old Testament Scriptures, they speak of Elijah coming before the great and terrible day of the Lord. So perhaps it was Elijah that they were seeing now. Or perhaps it was Jeremiah, the weeping prophet. Well, there was a sense in which Jesus had that kind of compassion, and it is spoken of, the fact that he had wept before the people. Or it was because perhaps he was judging the people for being so far from God as Jeremiah did. Whatever their reasoning, they thought, some of them, that Jesus must be Jeremiah raised from the dead. Or some other prophet. There were so many people speculating on who it was that was standing before them with such power. But none of them came to the right conclusion, this is the Messiah, the Son of the living God, until now. Jesus, in verse 15, says to them, but who do you say that I am. Charles Spurgeon said that's one of the most important verses of Scripture that you could ever set your eyes upon because it asks the question to everyone who reads it, who do you say that Jesus is? Who do you say that I am, Jesus said. Not just the men around you, not just the women who have been part of your acquaintance, but their decisions, their understanding is limited to what they know and think. Who do you say that I am? What do you think about Jesus? What has He done to convince you of who He is? What do you say about this Jesus Christ? Who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter. Oh, thank you, Lord, for Simon Peter. He was such a saint. He did get it right. It wasn't because of Simon Peter that he got it right, by the way. But listen, Simon Peter, verse 16, answered and said, and it must be on behalf of all the rest of those who were there, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. You are the Messiah, the one who has been promised. It came to him. He understood. This is the one that was promised by God in all of the Old Testament Scriptures that spoke of the one that would save the world from their sins, from the power of the enemy. This is the Messiah. The Son of the living God. Yes, Peter, you got it right. That's who He is. Is that who we all think He is? That's the question we all of us need to answer. Who do you say that He is? Who do I say that He is? He's the Son of the living God. He is the Messiah. He is the One who was sent by God to save all of us from our sins, to deliver us from the power of the enemy, from the power of sin. He is the One who has given us forgiveness and He will raise us up again in that power in the day that He comes for His church and we will be like Him, glorified in glorified bodies as His glorified body. Oh, thank you, God Almighty, for the revelation that you have given to us through His Word that Jesus has come for us. 
that we might be saved. But who do you say that I am, Jesus says. It's a question we need to answer from the heart. I pray that all of us have. Both Simon Peter answered correctly. He's getting it. Read on. Verse 17 says, Jesus answered and said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona. He's using his Hebrew name, his given name, Simon. That's who his name is by birth. Barjona means son of a man named Jonah. Simon Barjona, blessed are you, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you. You know, the Word of God tells us that natural man can't understand spiritual things because they are spiritually discerned. That's still the truth today. It was then the truth also. Peter would not have known this except that the Spirit of God revealed it to him. As he has done with all of you who believe in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, so it was with Peter at this moment. The Spirit of God revealed this truth to him. It did not come from his flesh. Nothing good can come from your flesh or mine. That's what the Apostle Paul tells us also. In me, that is in my flesh, there is no good thing but by the Spirit it's been revealed. So again, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Oh, wonderful, wonderful truth this is. He goes on and continues and says, And I also say to you that you are Peter, using his Greek name. Remember, this is a name that Jesus himself gave to Simon Barjona, back in the day when they first met. Jesus had said, it's recorded in John's Gospel, you are Simon Barjona, but you will be called Peter. Petros in the Greek. It means rock. Rocky. Not Stallone, but this is Peter the rock. You are Peter. And then he goes on and says, and on this Petra rock, Difference in the Greek language. Petros, little stone. Petra, cliff. Huge edifice. There's a distinction there that Jesus made. Now, some argue, well, now, wait a minute. That distinction is not necessarily what Jesus said because Jesus spoke Aramaic. And there's no gender in Aramaic. And these are two different genders in the Greek language. Petros is masculine. Petra is feminine. And so their argument is, he's talking to Peter as the rock. And their argument continues based on that, that Peter is the first apostle of the church, and he is the one that God appointed to be the foundation of the church. That's bull. Plain and simple. That's just not so. Peter's going to prove that in just a few verses from here. But he proves it elsewhere, too. When Peter went to Antioch after the believers began coming in great numbers, Gentile believers. Peter went to Antioch with some of the other disciples, and he had fellowship with those Gentiles. How could he do so if he was a Jew? It's because he had been already to Cornelius' house, a centurion that he saw the Holy Spirit come upon, and all of his household. Peter knew that God was moving mightily among the Gentiles. And he's now in Antioch eating ham sandwiches with the Gentiles, fellowshipping with them, shaking their hands, giving them great bear, bear hugs. But then some of the other Jews came up from Jerusalem, and they saw Peter 
And as soon as Peter saw them, he withdrew himself from the Gentiles and then became just a Jew, only eating what Jews would eat, not getting anywhere near the Gentiles. Paul happened to be there. And remember what took place? Paul rebuked Peter. Paul, a secondary individual, came to the Lord after Peter did, was never told that he was going to be the rock, and he wasn't. He rebuked Peter. If he's the rock, if he's the foundation of the church, how could somebody like Paul rebuke him? That just doesn't make any sense. Unfortunately, the Roman Catholic Church has built a doctrine around this simple belief. Peter was not the rock. Because the rock that Jesus is talking about is a foundation that only Jesus could be and none other. Paul tells us that it is Jesus Christ who is that foundation. And upon no other foundation can anything be laid but that which is Christ Jesus our Lord. Also found in 1 Corinthians. That's why you need to be in our study on Thursday night so you can know these things. It's not Peter who is the foundation of the church. It is Jesus. So it's either upon this confession that Peter has just made or upon the fact that Jesus is the rock. And Peter himself will say later on in 1 Peter that Jesus is that chief cornerstone, that basic foundation for the building of the church. He knew that. So should we. I will build my church, Jesus says. This is the first mention of the word church in Matthew's Gospel. Ecclesia is a Greek word. It means assembling people who are assembled together, separated from others, assembled together as one group, one simple family of believers. That's who the church is. Church isn't Safe Harbor Church, Searsport, Maine. The church isn't C.C. Bangor. The church isn't anywhere else in a building, a structure. It is you and I. And we are part of what that building is. And we stand on a sure foundation, which is Jesus Christ. When we do that, we are indeed the church of God. Individuals, not buildings, not structures. I will build my church. And then he says, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. That means Satan has no power over you. He has no power over me. We are chosen. We are blessed to be His own. We are filled with His Spirit. We have power that is beyond the power of Satan. He can never match that power. He's not God's equal or the equal of Jesus. They are not brothers as some teach. Jesus is not an angel as some teach. He's a very God, the Son of God, in flesh, who came to die and was raised again so that you and I could live. Because He lives, so shall we live also. That's what we teach and believe. Don't let any other doctrine interfere with what you know to be true. The gates of hell shall not prevail against it. That's more commonly what you hear when this verse is quoted. I do want to remind you that the word Hades is a Greek word. 
And it just simply is a reference to the Hebrew word Sheol. It is a place where when people die, all people used to go to. And in Hades, there were those who went into Abraham's bosom back in the day before Jesus. That was a place where the righteous were going. After death, their souls went to Hades, into that place that is called paradise. But there is a chasm between that group of individuals, the righteous individuals who believed in God, and those who did not believe in God went into another area of that same place known as the place of torments. Still Hades, but separated by a great chasm. And neither could cross over to the other side. That's all changed since the resurrection. Jesus went into the belly of the earth, Paul tells us. He led captivity captive, Paul tells us. And that implies that all of those saints, Abraham and David and all of the others, every one of those who had died as righteous men, believing what they knew with the amount of knowledge that they had, they were people that had said yes to God. I believe what you have told me. And as a result of that faith that they expressed, they were with Abraham on that side of Hades, and it has been emptied. Now, there are some who will not teach such things. I just happen to believe that that is the best understanding. Read Luke chapter 16 to verify some of that, which I've just said. Read the book of Acts. Read Paul's letter to the Corinthians, both of them. If you can find the third one, let me know. It's not been available for 2,000 years. But the truth of God's Word is so very clear. Jesus said, The gates of Hades will not prevail against the church. That gives us victory. We're to be a victorious church. What happened? What happened to the church? What's going on? Why aren't we victorious? Why aren't we seeing the power of the Holy Spirit in our midst? Why aren't we experiencing the wonderful, miraculous things that were done according to the Word of God in the book of Acts, for instance, with the church being born and all of those people who were coming experiencing these wonderful experiences with the moving of the Holy Spirit among them? Why aren't we seeing any of that now? I submit to you that that is happening now. But we must not want it enough in this area. This is not happening at least so much as it perhaps might. There are many miracles taking place in other parts of the world. A lot of that which is taking place is happening because of the persecution that the church is having to endure. So if you want the miraculous Expect that persecution and rejoice in it. That's what Peter did. That's what John did. They were imprisoned. They were scourged. They were released the next day and they were rejoicing that they could suffer for Christ's sake, for the preaching of the Word of God. Are we willing to get that sincere, that committed? There may be testing coming for that reason, 
to find out whether or not we are willing. And if it does happen, my prayer is that each one of us here would be saying, yes, Jesus, I'm yours no matter what takes place, no matter what might happen to us. They can kill the body, but they cannot kill the soul. The body goes into the ground. It decays. The soul goes into the presence of God when we pass on to this next world. No longer are the righteous in Hades. The righteous are with God in heaven, with Jesus. As He is seated seated at the right hand of the throne of God, we are there, uh, will be there, rejoicing in that day when we are in His presence. Blessed be the name of the Lord, for He has promised these things to all who believe. And by faith, let us know, beyond a shadow of a doubt, that we have that promise also. To live is Christ. To die is gain. Much gain. Verse 19 continues and says, To Peter, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of the heavens, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And then he commanded that they should tell no one that he was Jesus the Christ. In these last few minutes, I'm going to briefly tell you, I think, what is meant by Jesus in this passage. Peter was given this promise by Jesus that whatever he loosed on earth would be loosed in heaven. Whatever he bound on earth will be bound in heaven. Interesting that in the original Greek language that Matthew wrote this in, the tense is slightly different than the perfect tense that we have recorded in our translations because it implies in the original language that it will have been loosed. It will have been bound. It has already been done in heaven. And what has already been done in heaven, Peter is being told, you will be confirming when you do these things, when it is done by the power of the Holy Spirit leading you in those things, it will be exactly as it has been done in heaven already. That's the thrust of what Jesus is applying these words to with regard to Peter. But should you think that it's because he's speaking to Peter here that I might be wrong with regarding to the foundation that we were discussing earlier, if you go to the end of Matthew's Gospel, you'll find that he's giving the same responsibility to all his disciples, not just to Peter. And it's very clear there. But he's speaking directly to Peter because of what Peter had said. And finally, in verse 20, he commanded his disciples again that they should not tell anyone that he is the Christ. It's not time. That's the only reason. It wasn't time. If they had started to proclaim this, it wouldn't have been the right time. Jesus had said over and over again, my time has not yet come. My time has not yet come, but it is coming. It's only about ten months away, people. As we continue through the reading of Matthew's Gospel, we'll see that he is moving in that direction. He's going down from that location on the eastern shore, ultimately to Jericho, and from Jericho he's going to cross into Jerusalem. And it is there that he's going to finish the work that he has come to do. He's finished talking to the Pharisees and scribes. He's finished talking to the Jews, the nation. 
the lost sheep of Israel. He's finished talking to those who have seen all of these miracles, who have heard his voice speaking such wondrous things. He's finished now with the public in general at large. He's going to focus primarily the rest of his time talking to his disciples to train them, to make them to understand as limited as their understanding still will be. He wants them to know and we'll see what he begins to unfold with regard to what's remaining in their time together. We'll look at that next time.